Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, church. The Lord is with you. There's a story that tells about a a disciple of a rabbi coming to his rabbi, his teacher, and uh, puzzled, said, Rabbi, why, why did God create humans as messed up as we are? And the rabbi wisely said, because God loves a good story. And I think God does love a good story. Most of the Bible is made up of stories. Even the section, first five books of the Bible we call the law. It's not laws. There are laws in there. Most of it is stories. Jesus, rabbi, teacher, came and he told stories. That's what he was known for doing. And it is part of our makeup as human beings that we love a good story. When I was a kid, I was a voracious reader, and my mother would have to regularly, especially on school nights, uh, yell upstairs where my bedroom was, Robert, turn off the light and go to bed, and which I obediently went under the covers with my flashlight and continued reading until I couldn't hold my eyes open because I wanted to know how the story ended. Uh, That's why we binge on Netflix or other streaming services is because we went in one episode and we go... I want to know what happens next. And we move forward with expectation because we're drawn into a story that has a good setting and good characters and a good plot. Well, one of the reasons we are so drawn to stories is because life is a story. It's not just like a story. It is a story, and we are characters in it. And God's story of what God has done in creating us in working through history, in calling us to himself and preparing to redeem all things down in the future. God's story is the story we've been invited into and and we've begun to participate in. And it's a good story and we're excited about it. And there are individual portions of that. The story of Trinity Baptist Church is a great story. It's been going on now for almost 80 years. There have been lots of chapters, lots of episodes in it. But we're at that point right now where we're about to turn a page and go to the next episode, the next chapter. And we are drawn into that. We're interested in what happens next because we are part of that story. And we're not the only ones who are interested. There are a lot of former members of Trinity that live in many other places, but who check in regularly with their friends or their family or online or through some publication to see how things are going here. But there's more than that. The book of Hebrews says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, meaning by that those who have gone on before us who are on the other side right now, their love and interest in Trinity Baptist Church didn't end when they drew their last breath. They are witnesses. They are encouraging us and interested in what happens next at Trinity, the next episode, the next chapter, and it's about to begin. It's an exciting time to be a part of a church like this, a great setting in San Antonio, Texas, a great group of characters who have gone before us and those characters that are present among us right now, and a great God who is working in the midst of all of that. What What a great time to be part of Trinity. And we are preparing to turn the page, getting ready for what comes next. It's a strange thing we do as a Baptist church to select a new pastor. 
many of our brothers and sisters in other traditions and denominations have bishops who go do a match thing and say, I'm sending this pastor to this congregation. I hope it works. Think it'll work. But we don't do that. We look around among ourselves and we choose out a number, a dozen or so people, and we bless them and elect them to be our pastor search team. And off they go. The whole world is an open field. They begin to uh, inquire about and find pastoral candidates all over the place. They pray hard. They work together. They disagree. They come together. And finally, and they are prayed for by the rest of us. And finally, at some point in the process, they say, we believe we found a person that God is calling to this place. And when the congregation says, we think so too, that person is invited, called to be the new pastor. It's a strange sort of thing. It's sort of akin to an arranged marriage in some ways. Uh, like in the story in the Old Testament where one of the patriarchs needs a wife for his son, so he sends his servant off to a far country and says, find somebody. And Rebecca comes back to marry Isaac, and they've never even gone out for a drink, a soda or a coffee. They haven't even texted. They, they just met and that they're married. Well, here we are at this arranged marriage. It's like an arranged marriage because it is a covenant that is formed between pastor and congregation. A covenant's different than a contract. A contract's sort of a legal document that requires things of both parties. But a covenant is where people come together and make promises to each other, as we do in marriage. We say, this is who I will be to you, and this is what I promise. And the other person says, this is what I will be to you, and this is what I promise. And what holds that relationship together is trust and mutuality. And the covenant between congregation and pastor is like that. Churches in, I don't know, the last recent decades have more and more been influenced by our secular culture and the way we think about things, and not always good. I, we learn some things from the way the world does things in business and all that, but not all of it is helpful for a church, in my humble and accurate opinion, okay? One of those things, and I want to ask you to watch your language and watch other people's language and correct them if they say this, because one of the things we began to do a few years ago is we quit talking about calling a pastor we begin to talk about hiring a pastor. Hiring is what is done out in the world. You hire a new CEO to run your company. We don't hire a pastor to run our company, our business. We call a pastor. And we believe by using that language that we're expressing what we believe has gone on, that we have needed a pastor. We called on God. We gathered a committee. We prayed for them. We sent them out. They did all that hard work. They struggled with hours and hours and hours of meetings. We prayed for them as they did that. They let us know regularly how it was going. But then finally, one day, Joe Bray gets up and goes, you know, white smoke coming up. We have a pastor. We found someone. We agree. This is the right person, and we want, can't wait to introduce them to you. And, and Matt Homeyer and his family are introduced to Trinity Baptist Church. And we voted not to hire him, to call him. We said, God is telling a story among us. God is doing something among us, and we invite you to come and be our pastor and to lead us in that process, to be part of that with us for the next chapters in our life together. That's what's going on. And uh, so we come together and we make promises to each other and we say, this is who I'll be to you. 
pastor, and the pastor says, this is who I'll be to you, people, and together uh, we form church. We may say, when we talk about our spouse, we might say my husband or my wife, we might talk about my parents, my father, my mother, my children, uh, my family, but when we use the word my to talk about those kinds of things, it means something different than when we say my car or my house, doesn't it? Uh, my car or my house is a statement of possession. But when we say my husband, my wife, my children, it's not about possession, it's about relationship. I'm talking about these people that belong to me and I belong to them. It's a mutual kind of thing when we say that. And we have to be careful when we talk about my church, whether we are pastors or congregants, because we can misuse that word. If we think my church means the church that belongs to me, where I get to have my say and things are done my way, then uh, we're misusing that. And if a pastor speaks of my church in that way, he or she is mis misusing that. Neither of us, pastor nor congregation, possesses the church. Uh, the only one who can say my church in that way is the Lord Jesus Christ because it is God's church. We can say my church. I love my church. We can say I attend my church when we talk about it relationally, but we can't say it possessively. It's really important to get clear. When a pastor or church member says my church, you have to remember that it's not improper to do that as long as we understand that's not possession. It is God's church. Paul wrote about the connection between churches and their pastoral leaders in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. And I want to turn there in your Bibles. If you have your Bible, if not, you can read on the screen. The church in Corinth had lots of problems, uh, many problems, which necessitated a series of letters. We have two of them in the New Testament, 1 and 2 Corinthians. But there are indications within those letters that Paul had written at least three other letters to them that we don't have. But he, we have these two, and they are all to address problems there. One of the problems, and the very first one he addresses, yes, ma'am. First uh, Corinthians chapter three, verse five, beginning there. Um, one of the things that Paul is addressing there is a division that had grown up in the church, a schism. Uh, what had happened was that people had given personal loyalty to one or another of these various pastors or leaders that they had had there. Uh, Paul had gone there to establish the church, and so there were people in the church that said, I am of Paul. Paul, Paul baptized me, or I, was, I became part of the church when Paul was here, and I appreciate Paul's teaching. And then there was a fellow named Apollos who came along after Paul and taught the church. He was a brilliant scholar, trained in Greek rhetoric. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, and he could deliver an oration like nobody else. And there were people who were attracted to the Christian faith during Apollos' ministry. And some of the people said, well, you may be a Paul, but I'm of Apollos. And then there were some maybe that had migrated there that had come maybe from Palestine back where it had all started with Jesus. And they had had connections or come to faith under the ministry and teaching of Simon Peter, also known as Cephas. That was his Aramaic name. And they said, well, you may be that, but we are connected to Cephas, one of the original apostles. And then there were people who were so spiritual, they wouldn't have anything to do with those mere human leaders. They said, well, we're just of Jesus. And the church was divided that way. Even the Jesus faction was part of the division. And so Paul has to write to them and say, let's get straight about the role of congregation and pastors and whose church it is. 
And so he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we, Apollos and I, are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace of God given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, for the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Paul makes it really clear through three distinct images that the church is God's church and not any of our any of ours. We don't possess it. It is God's church. We have a different connection to it. It's like he puts some slides up on the screen. He says, let me explain. You are God's field. You are God's garden. It's God's garden. Now, Paulus and I, we're like servants. We are workers in the field. I went along, someone plowed it up. I went along and planted seed. Apollos came along and watered it. Others have come along and cultivated it and gotten the weeds out. But none of us could have made this thing grow any more than a, a farmer can make a, a seed grow. The farmer may put a kernel of corn in the ground, but I, there's nothing that can be done to make that turn into a stalk and then into ears of corn. The, the farmer does not have that power. All he can do is provide the conditions. And so he prepares the soil and waters it and cultivates it and, and then just has to wait and watch. Jesus told a parable about that very thing he called the seed growing in secret. The farmer doesn't even know how it works. He just knows that if I do the right things and trust God, there's growth. And it's the same way with work in the kingdom, he says. Paul says, we... We didn't do anything. We just took care of the soil. We planted the seeds. We watered it. And then we left. And it is God who has caused the growth of the church in Corinth. And he says, let me think about it another way. Uh, you are God's building. I'm not an architect, Paul says. I didn't design the church. God designed the church. It's an image in God's mind of what the church would be like. But I came along, and since I was first there, I was like a wise architect or master builder who laid a foundation. And the only foundation that can be laid that's of any good at all, he said, is Jesus Christ. So I came and preached the gospel to you. I preached Jesus to you, and I taught you the basics of the faith. And then I left. But there was just a foundation there. Apollos came along, 
He started framing the place. Others have come along and added windows and walls and roof. And, and it's continued to be a work in progress as the church, the people, not the building, are built. And, and we're just like construction workers. We each one are subcontractors. We each one have a little part to do, but we don't do the whole thing. It is God's building you are, he said. And then he hits the button again and says, or think of it this way. You're God's temple. That's who you are. Apollos and I, we're just like that cadre of priests who serve in the temple, but it's not our temple. God's spirit is present among you all. And we are just there to help with the relationship. It's not our doing. We are merely servants. And he goes through all of those images there. The temple, the building, the garden are all God's. They're not yours, he says. They're not mine. They are God's. The church belongs to God. And I find that truth somewhat limiting because the church has got it, but doesn't belong to the pastor and it doesn't belong to the congregation. And that means that the mission of the church is God's as well. It is God's mission. If we expect you know, Dr. Homeyer to show up in a few weeks and open his Mac and hit a button and say, here's the mission of God for Trinity Baptist Church, and now I'll tell you what all to do, and off we go. If that's what we expect, we're going to be sorely disappointed. And, and let's pray to God he doesn't do that. <laughs> and he knows better. Because the mission isn't his to decide nor is it yours to decide and say, we want this done in our church. It's not, our, it's not your church. You are a member of it. The mission is God's mission. The pastor and the congregation come together to say, we need to discern this mission. We need to figure it out together. And you pray and you talk and you share and you examine. And in that interaction of things, God's Spirit makes clear what it is that's next, what the future looks like. And you discern that mission together, and then you give yourself to it because it's not your mission, it is God's mission. It's a strange thing uh, that God has chosen to do, and that is partner with us. But strange as it seems, he's chosen to partner with flawed, sinful human beings to accomplish his redemptive purpose in the world. Even in Corinth, Paul says to those people, look at yourselves, he says, Look who God has chosen among you. Nobody especially bright. Nobody especially powerful. He has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the world. He will work through you and me. It's an amazing sort of thing. It is God's mission. We don't decide it. We submit to it. We work on discerning it, and then we submit to it. That's essentially the meaning of the idea of election is to be elected. It, that election doesn't primarily deal with who's in and who's out, who goes to heaven and who doesn't. Election has to do with who's chosen to serve. The chosen one was Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 has this beautiful discussion of election, and Jesus is God's beloved, God's chosen one, and we are chosen in him, elected in him. The chosen one, that's what makes us elect, is we've given our faith to the chosen one. Now, what was he chosen to do? bear a cross, go to Calvary, suffer and die. To be the chosen one means the one chosen to serve, not the one chosen to be blessed. And when God chooses us and we are called his chosen people as the church, it's because we've been chosen to serve, to bear a cross, to be like our Lord. We haven't been chosen for privilege. We've been so chosen to serve and to pay a price as he did.
When God called the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. He had delivered them, shown them his grace, let them go from Pharaoh's power, and he gathered them at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up onto the mountain. And while he's up on the mountain, God says to him, okay, here's the deal. I want you to go back down to my people, and I want you to tell them this. You've seen what I've done to the Egyptians, how I delivered you on eagles' wings from bondage. Now, if you will keep my commandments, if you will enter into covenant with me, if you will heed my words, keep my commandments, then you will be for me a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a set-apart nation, a people for my own possession, for all the nations of the earth are mine, but you're going to be my treasured possession. Will you do that? If you'll enter into covenant with me, you will be my chosen people. Moses went down and shared that with the people of Israel, and the people of Israel shouted back, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then it was then just to form the covenant. Now, that was, that was the moment in Israel's history as a people. It was when they became God's people. From then on, in the prophets and the Psalms, they'll use this language, this relational language. Israel will say of God, our God or my God. And God will say of Israel, my people. Or sometimes the other way around, God will say, your God and my people, our God and your people. That language pervades the Old Testament. Big moment there in Israel's history. Well, in the New Testament, Peter writes a letter to Gentile Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. It's called 1 Peter. And in there, he uses that very language to describe the church, us. He describes us this way. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you were not, you had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. We sang it. We are who he says we are, right? We are who he says we are. He says we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and that our mission is to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know Reggie McNeil? Not, not the football player, the other guy. Yeah, the church consultant. <laughs> he's a missiologist. Uh, he studies missions. He consults with congregations. And he said this, the North American church is suffering from severe mission amnesia. It has forgotten why it exists. The church was created to be the people of God to join him in his redemptive mission in the world. The church was never intended to exist for itself. It was and is the chosen instrument of God to expand his kingdom in the world. That is our mission, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So when a church calls a pastor, we're not inviting a CEO to come run our religious organization. It's not what we're doing. We're not hiring at all. We're inviting someone to join his life 
with our life together in pursuit of the mission that God has given to us as his people. Please come join us and work with us and lead us in that mission. When we call a pastor, we're inviting a shepherd to lead us, to feed us, to care for us. That's what shepherds do with sheep. They lead and feed and care. And so we're saying, we need you to come and lead us. Leadership's an important word, hot word these days. Google, it'll be millions and millions of hits. Uh, Google Christian leadership, you'll find millions of hits. Go to Amazon and Google leadership. There are more books written about leadership and so, than you can imagine. What that tells me is a couple of things. One is we're very interested in it, and two, we don't have a clue what it's about. <laughs> or else there wouldn't be so many people trying to figure it out for us. But leadership is inherently about the future, isn't it? We don't need a leader if we want to stay where we are. We need a manager. But if we want to go somewhere else, we need a leader who will help us make our way there. Leadership is inherently about the future. One definition of a leader is that a leader is a midwife that helps people give birth to their future. And that's what we're asking. We're inviting a shepherd to come and lead the sheep. The 23rd Psalm says, he leads me. My shepherd leads me through to still waters. Leadership is also inherently about change, isn't it? Uh, here's what happens in churches. I know not Trinity Baptist. This is every other church, okay? But not Trinity Baptist. We look around and we say, we can imagine greater things happening. We can imagine reaching people we're not reaching right now. We can imagine younger people coming among us. We can imagine, we want this to happen. And so we go out and we talk to pastoral candidates and we tell them that. And we say, we want someone who will come and help this happen. Now, if it were already happening would we have to tell them that? No, we'd already be doing what we needed to do. So when we say, we want somebody to help us do this, we're saying it's not happening the way we think it should happen right now. And so we need someone to help us, which means we're going to have to do what? We're going to have to change something. If what we were doing, we're getting it, we wouldn't be asking for it. We're going to have to change something. And all of us get shivers when we hear the word change. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? No, it's like, we don't do that. But, so we say that to these candidates. I'm sure it's been said to Dr. Homar. We want this to happen. And we do. We, we're not making that up. We really want to see Trinity Baptist Church be everything Trinity can be in this community that God has in mind for it, right? But almost every church has some fine print at the bottom of the page on that request. If you look real close to get a magnifying glass, it says, and we will do everything in our power to keep this from happening. <laughs> because we want to do it without changing anything. It's not going to happen. We've invited a shepherd to come and lead us. That doesn't mean he knows everything that there is to know about leading. It doesn't mean he knows everything there is to know about what needs to be done. But it does mean that his job description is to keep us focused on our future and on our mission so that together we pray it out and figure it out and then submit to it using our gifts and abilities and experience and the spirit of God working among us. It is our leader's task to help us find that way and move toward it and to keep it in front of us at all times. We're inviting a shepherd to come lead us, not a CEO to run our organization. We're inviting a shepherd to come feed us. We are inviting him to come and keep us immersed in thinking about the truth of God's word and to offer milk to the immature and meat to those who are mature and to do everything necessary to help us be built up as disciples of Jesus with his teaching and preaching. We're inviting him to come and do that. 
In his conversation with Simon Peter after the resurrection, Jesus asked him, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. And in John 21, 5, he said, then feed my sheep. It is the pastoral task to feed the sheep. He leads me into green pastures. And we're inviting a shepherd to come and we're to ask him to care for us, to love us, even as unlovable as we are at times. We're asking him to walk with us through the crises of our lives and remind us that God is with us in those crises, not to fix things for us or just make us feel comfortable. There's a pastor who's referred to in a piece of literature that I think the author said he was one part pastor and four parts masseuse. Uh, that's often what we want. Is someone just to make us feel, no. Pastoral care is his coming alongside us in those crises of our lives, and we will all deal with them, and saying to us, God is present with you. So in hospital rooms and in funeral homes and in living rooms and in his study, your pastor's job is to say God to you in the midst of those crises. That's what we're asking him to come do. Lead us, feed us, care for us, be that presence among us. When we call a pastor, we're inviting a prophet teacher to come and speak God's truth to us. We're asking him, please, don't sugarcoat the truth. We can handle it. Tell us what scripture says. Even if it's hard, we want to hear the truth. Don't ignore the hard truths. Tell us what we need to hear in order to be the people God's calling us to be, to live this life in Christ that we want to live. Tell us the truth. We're asking him to do that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't get a little bent out of shape if we hear some of that hard truth at times. I saw a pastor made a statement this week. Someone told him that he had stepped on their toes in a sermon. He said, I'm sorry, I was aiming for your heart. <laughs> We're asking him to think through Christian truth, to study, to read, to learn, and to share that learning with us so we can live better the life that we're called together. We're asking him to do that. We're asking him not, don't shoot from the hip. You spend time with God and God's word, and then come tell us what you've heard. We can deal with that. That's what we're asking. We're inviting a fellow believer priest to help us come and live among us and help us to know God and God's ways better. We're not hiring a religious professional or a spiritual consultant. We're inviting someone who himself is attempting to live this very life. We're inviting a sinful person who is learning to follow Christ in his life to come and live among us and do that right in front of us so that we can see better how we ought to live. We're inviting him to do that. We're asking him to come and live among us and take God seriously in his life. We're asking him to pray and to teach us to pray. We're asking him to bear witness and to encourage us to bear witness. We're asking him to live generously and teach us how to do that. We're asking him to engage in service and the mission and let us see how it's done so that we can do it too. We're inviting a fellow believer priest to come and live among us this life that we want to live as well. We're asking one of God's people to help us stay focused on God's mission and the life God calls us to live. We're asking him to come and help us partner with God in what it is that God wants to do in our world and to write that next chapter really, really well. We ought to be clear who we are and whose we are. We need to be clear about whose church it is and whose it isn't. We need to be clear about what it is we're called to do, our mission. We have to be clear about what it is we're doing when we call a pastor. We are God's field. We are God's building. We are God's temple. We are a chosen people, royal priesthood, 
holy nation, people for God's own possession. We've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light, and we've been charged with bearing witness to that. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. It's been poured out on us. And we are God's people, the sheep of his pasture, and we're calling a shepherd to come and walk with us. So I've got a responsive reading thing I'd like to close with today. And I'll ask you to read your part. But if the words that are on the screen don't reflect what comes out of your own heart, keep your mouth closed. Just zip and let everybody else read. Don't, I'm not asking you to be a hypocrite. But if this is expressing what you want to say, then say it boldly and loudly and say it from deep within. Would you join me in this? Church, do you know who you are? Church, do you know whose you are? Church, do you know what your mission is? Church, how will you pray for your pastors? We pray for them to lead us into our mission, to feed us from God's word, and to care for our souls. We pray for them to speak God's truth to us in love and to teach us his ways. We pray for them to live as examples among us so that we might learn better to live the life of holiness, obedience, and faith that God has called us to live. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for the place where we stand today in time that over this past year, there's been so many good things you've done. You called together a group of men and women and they shared their hearts and they agreed with each other and disagreed with each other and worked together to a point where they came to believe that a particular person they had encountered was a person you have to serve here. We're thankful that you led them and had their path cross the path and life of the Homar family. We're grateful that through that process, uh, Matt's family has also found that to be uh, found a sense of God's leadership in that and have said yes to our invitation, our call to come and work with us, be among us. We're thankful, God, for the opportunity that lies outside these doors of this city where we are. We're thankful for what lies inside these walls and uh, the resources that are here in terms of people and gifts and callings and other things. We're thankful for all of that. And here we stand ready to turn a page, and it's your story. And we eagerly walk into the next episode. Help us to live out these commitments that we've affirmed of who we are and whose we are and our mission and how we will pray for those who serve us as pastors here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.